So what's this I hear about you pulling your horns on Portis? I thought we were going to confirm him. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this episode of 5 to 4, the hosts are talking about Abe Fortas. Fortas served as an associate justice from 1965 to 1969 and was then nominated by Lyndon B. Johnson to serve as chief justice. But a coalition opposed desegregation, including Senator Strom Thurmond, managed to block the nomination. I am familiar with his positions, but the reason I'm asking these questions is to build a record so the Senate itself will know his positions and the public will know his positions. The majority of the public and maybe a majority of the Senate will take the same position that I do concerning his confirmation. The opposition to Fortas dug up enough dirt to prompt him to resign in disgrace as a way to avoid impeachment. But in our modern era, with Supreme Court justices being treated to millions of dollars worth of travel, regularly appearing at partisan events, and brokering real estate deals involving people with business before the court, Fortas's transgressions seem downright tame. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have threatened our civil liberties, like Elon Musk threatening a lawsuit against someone who criticizes him. Mm. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey. Hi, Peter. Michael, taking the day. Mm-hmm. Whenever there's a premium episode, he tries to get out of it, and sometimes <laughs> we let him. <laughs> We've allowed him one day off. That's right. That's right. No pay. Yeah. No pay. I should mention something a little different for me, too, that listeners might be able to hear right now. I have a different setup. I am actually recording not from my home where I usually record. I am recording due to some noise issues at home. I am at a wonderful organization called Workers Defense Project here in Austin. Thank you to WDP and friends here for opening up the office so that I can podcast from here on this Monday afternoon. But shout out to WDP and listeners, if you're listening to this and kind of hear a difference in how I usually sound, it's because I'm in a different place with a different mic. Hmm. It's good to have local connections. That's right. If anything ever goes wrong in my home, I will be in a back office at the local Bank of America branch. (laughs) Peter's no new friends policy has left him him struggling. A decade of not talking to anyone (laughs) has damaged my ability to pivot to a different office space, I will say that. Today, we're going to be talking about the disgracing of Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas in 1968, Fortas was nominated to be elevated to chief justice from his position as associate justice. Not only did the nomination fail, but he was eventually forced to resign in disgrace. I'm going to tell that story and we're going to talk about what it tells us about the modern confirmation process and the modern discussions of Supreme Court corruption, ethics, things like that. Mm. Just to give credit where it's due for this discussion, I cribbed quite a bit from the book The Battle for the Marble Palace by Michael Babillion. As such, this is sort of an if-books-could-kill format. I have read the book, and Rhiannon is, you know, learning. 
I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning. I don't know anything about Abe Fortas. I couldn't have told you before, maybe a month ago when Peter brought this up, I could not have told you that Abe Fortas was eventually forced to resign as a justice from the Supreme Court because of the appearance, at least, of some impropriety, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. corruption allegations. So yeah, I'm really interested to learn about what all went down? Because, you know, what I do know, you say the year 1967, 1968, some shit's going down, you know? Like, That's right. like I do know, I do know some broad things about American history at that time. And so very interested to hear how this Fortis guy fits into all of that. Yeah. And the shit that's going down in the late 60s is very, very relevant here. Abe Fortas has only been on the court for three years. He's appointed by LBJ in 1965. And we're at the height of conservative opposition to the Warren court, right? We've talked about that so many times on the show, but you have a ton of liberal decisions coming down from the court and conservatives are mad. You have these sort of like anti-McCarthyite decisions in the late 50s. There's Watkins v. United States, a 1957 case, which said congressional investigation powers were not unlimited. They, They didn't have the right to like blast out people's private affairs to the public, right? This is like... A big uh, attack from the court on Joe McCarthy and his acolytes. Right. One thing to know about that is like that irritated people in Congress because like it limits their investigating power. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. they were mad about that shit. There's another anti-McCarthy case, 1957, Yates v. United States. Mm-hmm. Some 16 Communist Party members had been convicted under the Smith Act of collaborating to overthrow the U.S. government or whatever. The Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren overturned those convictions, said, no, they didn't conspire to overthrow the U.S. government. They're just communists. Right. You can't convict them for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, almost all of the cases that really upset conservatives predate Fortas. You know, he's only on the court in 1965. And I think that sort of goes to show how much of what happens here, what I'm going to talk about, is really like a symbolic fight about the Warren court more than it is a real dispute about Abe Fortas. And the parts of it that become a real dispute about Abe Fortas are almost coincidental. There's something that just sort of happens in the course of this when what's really happening is that this is a big fight about what the Warren court has done. Yeah, that's what's so interesting maybe about this story of Abe Fortas is it shows how much opposition there was to the Warren court and what the Warren court was doing while at the same time, like the Warren court and these decisions that pissed off conservatives, pissed off people in the government, you know, in the late fifties through the sixties, those cases are the reason why we're taught today that the Supreme court is cool. Right. 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 Like these are the cases that were like protecting individual freedoms, you know, protecting the rights of criminal defendants, civil rights wins at the Supreme court. This was Earl Warren's, tenure over the Supreme Court. Those are the decisions. Brown v. Board, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the decisions we learn in school and why we think the Supreme Court is great. At the time, at the time, conservatives absolutely, absolutely hated it. An entire conservative legal movement was born out of hating the Warren Court, right? Right, right. And we can probably talk about Brown. I mean, Brown happens over a decade before Abe Fortas is on the court, nearly 15 years before Abe Fortas is nominated to chief justice in 68. But 
Southerners wanted to slow down integration efforts, right? They had sort of given up on just overturning Brown v. Board, and they were like, all right, well, let's slow down the actual process of integration. And so Nixon, Richard Nixon, who's uh, trying to get the Republican nomination, is courting Strom Thurmond and other Southern senators in the 1968 convention by pitching slowing down Brown v. Board. And he says to them that he thinks the chief justice should be chosen by the next president, not a lame duck president, Mm -hmm. right? Shades of like the Merrick Garland debacle happening here, right? Like, well, you know, it's an election year. Why should the outgoing president decide, right? That's less democratic than letting the next president decide for some reason. You know, there are some other things swirling around here. In 1962, you had Engel v. Vital, where the Supreme Court said, Prayer in schools, no good. Yeah. This is a big mobilizing moment for social conservatives against the court. Gallup polls showed 80 percent disapproval across the country of this decision. And this is 1968. You know, you have the MLK assassination. You have riots across the country in the midst of the confirmation hearings for Abe Fortas. You get the DNC protests in Chicago and That means you have concerns about decisions like Miranda, Mm -hmm. establishment of Miranda rights, which Abe Fortas for once was actually involved in. He was actually on the court when that case appears. And Nixon is tapping into like anti-Miranda animus. He's running on this law and order platform, right? He's railing against the court on the campaign trail. The public is very concerned about this criminal procedure stuff and you know, the riots sort of feed into their concern and the approval of the court drops nearly 10 percent in a year. That's sort of like part of this fabric of opposition to Abe Fortas that starts to develop here. Right. And preceding opposition to Abe Fortas, I mean, there's an entire like impeach Earl Warren campaign, right? Like the directed opposition, a campaign to really get Earl Warren off of the court, which I just recently learned. I knew that there had been like impeach Earl Warren calls, signs in America, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know. I think you said that that was started by the John Birch Society. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) The founder of the John Birch Society, Robert Welch, is like responsible for getting the impeach Earl Warren campaign off the ground. Uh, He hated the anti-Red Scare rulings, right, Right. in the late 50s. So that's sort of like his entry point. And he considers like Brown v. Board to be a communist plot. I mean, the Birchers are crazy, right? Right. They are conspiratorial, anti-communist, anti-Semitic, like the the works, you know? They're like a moderate Republican by modern standards. (laughs) So like the impeach Earl Warren billboards are... They're doing, for the most part, they put up one at the Indy 500. They create like posters and pamphlets and they're selling them. And, you know, that sort of impeach Earl Warren movement is it stems from the John Birch Society. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty bizarre shit. (laughs) Yeah. And then so, Peter, Abe Fortas would be the nomination, the confirmation hearings. They are to elevate him to chief justice because Earl Warren has announced his retirement, right? That's right. So Earl Warren says in June 1968, hey, I'm going to retire. Worth noting, he doesn't retire right away. He's just like, I'm going to retire. I've Mm -hmm. like announced my intentions to retire. 
And that sort of starts up the process of LBJ trying to appoint his replacement. So a little bit of background on Abe Fortas himself. Prominent lawyer, graduates from Yale Law, gets some big jobs, works for the SEC, the Department of the Interior. He's involved in the establishment of the UN in 1945, starts a law firm in 1946. If you've heard of Arnold and Porter, it used to be Arnold Fortas and Porter. Becomes very rich and successful, does some civil rights work. He represented Gideon in Gideon v. Wainwright, the case that established a right to an attorney in criminal proceedings. So he has a lot of friends in civil rights circles. He's very sympathetic to civil rights. And he has a very close relationship with President Lyndon B. Johnson. Mm. He had represented LBJ in 1948 in a legal dispute over the congressional runoff that LBJ was involved in. And then they're like really fast friends after that. When he initially gets tapped to be on the court in 65, he does not want to do it because it's like a huge pay cut. And he's like reportedly (laughs) very finicky about money as like a child of the Depression, sort of weirdly finicky about money. Uh, And this will probably come into play later uh, if you're trying to figure out why he does what he does. But he's eventually convinced like this is prestigious, Um, but it sort of just goes to show what the Supreme Court was at the time. Right. It was. And we'll talk about this a bit. But, you know, it's basically a a cabinet position to a large degree. Right. Right. Eisenhower and LBJ were like creating court vacancies by moving people around and offering them other positions in government. Goldberg retired because LBJ put him on the U.N. Yeah. During Vietnam. Fred Vinson the chief justice before Earl Warren was Truman's secretary of the treasury. So like the lines between justices and the political branches a little blurrier at the time than they are now. And maybe he just didn't view it as like notably prestigious, right? It's just like another sort of cabinet position. Right. But also important to point out, I think now it would be more like an appearance of impropriety for it to be known that a Supreme Court justice has such a close personal relationship or has previous you know, even professional dealings with the president, right, directly, like had represented the president in a prior legal dispute or anything like that. At the time, it's just not that big of a deal. And interestingly, is not, as I understand it, you know, the close relationship that Abe Fortas has with LBJ is not the locus, not the focus of the allegations of corruption that come up later. Right. Or at least it's not what takes him down. It's like it's part of the discussion. It's also worth noting that everyone knew that they were tight in the initial appointment to the Supreme Court. And he sails through that. No problem. Exactly. So we will talk a little bit about this. But his relationship to LBJ actually is shady. It's like objectively shady. Yeah. Uh, Congress doesn't actually know about it, really. But, you know, we'll dig into it. It ends up being like a little bit weird because what ends up happening here is that he is forced to resign for, like, stuff that's, you know, it's definitely shady, but it's less shady than the stuff that he's not resigning for that that they never really found out about. Right. So Earl Warren announces his retirement in June 1968. Like I mentioned, LBJ is like, all right, I'm making Abe Fortas the chief justice. And several things are happening here. Southern politicians led by Strom Thurmond have been upset with the court for the entire civil rights era, right? Uh, You had, like, Senator James Eastland, one of the last like truly open racists in Congress, yeah. uh, Robert Byrd of West Virginia coming out opposing Fortas, privately blaming him for uh, forced integration. You have this sort of like young, nascent 
conservative media apparatus, National Review, mm. uh, James Kilpatrick, a very famously racist columnist who was very prominent at the time, and other like right-wing media outlets, they start coming out in opposition to Fortas. And then you have some other slightly less racist senators who are off-put by like Warren's choice of when to retire because it's pretty openly a strategic decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the election year. Right. You wanted to avoid being confirmed by a Republican like this is pretty normal stuff now. But I think this was like either slightly unique at the time or it felt like a more legitimate excuse to some of these northern Republicans who wanted to oppose LBJ's uh, appointment. Right. Right. Robert Griffin, the Republican senator from Michigan, in a lot of ways, led the charge against Fortas and his concerns start off with this, about how he believes that this is improper for Earl Warren to do. So in general, what's happening is in some ways it's a perfect storm. In others, it's like the Warren court's opponents are all realizing that there's an opportunity to strike a blow against the court, right? Like against LBJ, against Earl Warren, against Abe Fortas, maybe in that order. Yeah. And so Abe Fortas is sort of immediately caught up in something that's much bigger than him. So we get to the hearings in front of the Judiciary Committee, and they start off with Thurmond and some other Southern Democrats arguing that Warren retiring strategically is like inappropriate. And they also point out that he hasn't officially resigned. He's only announced his intention to. And so they're like, constitutionally, there's no vacancy. And this is something that justices do now. And we've sort of been like, yeah, it's okay, right? This is how Stephen right. Breyer retired. He's like, pending my replacement, right. I will step down. And the reason he was doing that is because he didn't want another Merrick Garland situation happening, right? Right. But, you know, Strom Thurmond is trying to be like, well, there's no vacancy for us to fill. So constitutionally, this is not proper. The allegations of cronyism with LBJ start popping up, led by Senator Griffin. And then things get a little bit spicier. Witnesses are brought in to accuse Fortas of having ties to communism. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) The worst thing that you can be uh, tied to communists. Uh They include Kent Courtney, chairman of the Conservative Society of America, a conspiracy theorist who once called Henry Kissinger, quote, an extreme left Democrat. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I thought that was going to be something else, like maybe like anti-immigrant, like, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, not, not extreme left wing Henry Kissinger. I want to know what that guy thinks like extreme right wing is. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. it's got to be it's got to be fucking wild. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, all right. So these witnesses, they don't have any, like, evidence of ties to communists, obviously. They mostly just, like, go through the cases where he has, like, sided with the communists, quote unquote. And they're like, see, right. he's very suspiciously siding with the communists in all of these cases. He said people have First Amendment rights, including communists. Mm-hmm. That means he's a communist. That's right. It is funny that they were like, we hate these anti-McCarthyite rulings, and so we're going to do McCarthyism to you. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So this is all getting a little too hot. And so the White House is like, all right, we're going to send Fortas in to testify himself. And this was new. No sitting justice had ever testified before Congress. But they were like, he's in trouble. 
And Fortas himself is like very cocky about his skills in these settings. He's like, I'm going to do great in front uh-huh. of Congress. Uh-huh. He gets pressed on his ties to LBJ, which he downplays using some medium perjury. Mm. He tells Congress that his conversations with LBJ were sporadic and non-substantive. Now, in reality. Yeah, we know that that's not the case, right? He helped like write speeches for LBJ. Okay. He helped him strategize both politically and in at least one case, in cases before the court, he gave him tips on like briefing strategy given what was happening inside the court. So he's basically reporting on inner workings of the court in cases that LBJ is on. So he's doing like White House comms and also like legal advice for Supreme Court cases right in front of the court while he's a sitting justice. Yeah. So this is not stuff that the Judiciary Committee knew, but he is bullshitting with them. Right. He's fucking around. Yeah. He and his supporters also had a bunch of talking points about how his relationship wasn't that unusual historically. And they kind of had a point. Chief Justice Vinson had been a close advisor of Harry Truman, again, worked in his administration before his appointment. Frankfurter was an advisor to FDR. Douglas mm-hmm. was a like a poker buddy of FDR. Arthur Goldberg was a campaign advisor and labor secretary for JFK before he was on the court. Lincoln appointed campaign advisor of his to the court. These arguments actually like take a lot of the heat off here. And um, I think it's Senator Dirksen who speaks in Fortas's defense and does a number on Griffin and some of the anti-Fortas folks. And that causes them to pivot a little bit. And this is where things get even better. (laughs) Strom Thurmond steps up and he starts like making this generic case again that influencing the makeup of the court is a way of keeping it accountable to the people. And so Congress needs to be involved here. And he then focuses in on a case called Mallory v. U.S., where the court had said that a confession of sexual assault was not admissible because the police had held the guy for questioning for too long without an arraignment in violation of the rules of procedure. Thurmond is like grandstanding about how the court let a guilty man walk free. Right, right. Fortis is like reportedly a little bit shook up by this exchange. The kicker being that this case is from 1957, <laughs> eight years before Fortis, Fortis is even was on, on the, the court. court. Right. But he's just, again, getting associated with the Warren court generally right. and being made to defend it. Thurmond then hones in on pornography. Mm. And this is where the Fortis nomination really starts to fall apart. We'd basically seen like anti-obscenity laws get rolled back under the Warren court, right? Saying they're unconstitutional. And, you know, Fortis wasn't like purely pro-porn in these cases. Right. For context, the Warren court had in several cases expanded the First Amendment, right? To sort of allow for obscene materials. They had struck down obscenity laws that banned obscene materials from the public. And during these hearings for Abe Fortas to potentially take the chief justice seat, the senators are pinning all of this on Abe Fortas. So Thurmond brings on Citizens for Decent Literature to testify. Uh, They're like anti-porn crusaders. Virgins. Yeah, just a (laughs) bunch of dorks. Decent literature. The administration sends out Deputy A.G. Warren Christopher, famed statesman, to defend Fortas. And 
Thurmond is literally handing him porn and asking him for comments about it. (laughs) (laughs) Senator Eastland screens a porn film for committee members. And the film is literally just a woman doing a striptease. Thurmond says, quote, there could be no more hardcore pornography than this. Uh, okay. And and so you're showing it in Congress? like I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they invite the press to watch the film, but all the press people just laugh at it. <laughs> <laughs> so Eastland sends out an aide in search of the most hardcore porn he can find. Oh, my God. And the aide returns with some, like, avant-garde art porn film that involves gay sex and simulated rape. And then they show that to senators and the ones who watch it are aghast. Yeah. And so this is like what really starts to crystallize opposition to Fortis where like some previous Fortis defenders are starting to drop off because they were showed porn. Yeah, because they were showed (laughs) porn and it it being associated like this man lets these images, you know, enter your children's bedrooms or whatever the fuck. Right. Which, by the way, I don't know the answer to this, but it couldn't have been that easy to get hardcore porn at the time, right? Like. Now, a lot of these discussions are about, like, protecting children because, like, yeah, your fucking 10-year-old kid can find porn online. That is a fact. Yeah. And so if you want to talk about, like, legislating that, it's pretty complex. But at the time, if it was, like, 1968, truly, I don't know how a child would go about finding – you have to have, like, a disgusting pervert old friend, (laughs) right? Or, like, a friend with an older brother. You have to sort of, like, work your way through a labyrinth of uh, social mores before you can get this shit. Right. It's multiple steps, yeah, and probably physically acquiring, right, right? like – film or photographs or images in a right. book or something like that. And you would have to acquire those at a physical location somewhere. That's and like, like a projector screen. Yes. Right. Like so many steps to this. But yeah, members of Congress are like, this Supreme Court justice is delivering this to America. Yeah. This is almost like a lesser form of like, you let a criminal walk free, right? This is like you let this porn be yes. published. Right. Literally just being like, you're responsible for this pornography. Like the fact that I can yeah. find this is somehow your, your fault. Your fault. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're nearing the end of the hearings and we get a bombshell. Fortis taught a seminar at American University Law School. Someone from the school reaches out to Senator Griffin's office telling him to look into a, quote, very questionable payment structure for the seminar. And Fortas taught the seminar while he was a sitting justice, right? Yeah, that's right. The committee brings in the dean to testify. Basically, what happened is Paul Porter, Fortas's old partner, raised 30 grand for the seminar through some very rich donors, including like the chair of the New York Stock Exchange. The dean suggested to Fortas that he should be paid for the work, And the dean decides on 15K, half the money, with the other half going to fund student tuition. Thurman tries to get the dean to say that Fortis somehow like orchestrated this. And there's no indication of that. The dean is testifying like, no, I decided on the amount. This is sort of how it goes. But he does get the dean to admit that the highest payment for a single class before Fortis was about two grand. Mm. So this is... Seven and a half times that, right? Right, right. And this is sort of the nail in the coffin. There's nothing super corrupt here. There's some big money sloshing around for sure. But at the end of the day, this is a large payment 
for a very prestigious teacher, right? Like right. you have a Supreme Court justice teaching your seminar. It's a high payment, but it's also a payment that is out of donated funds. So like it's not costing the school much. Right. Now, you could say that in some abstract way, this is rich donors paying the justice, right? I think that's the sort of concern here. Sure. There aren't any cases that those donors have before the court, but this is the sort of like real material hook that the senators who hated Fortas needed to like imply corruption. Mm -hmm. Everything was very abstract before or it was like about the court cases. And this is where you're like, aha, he is shady, right? In some way that we hadn't seen. Right. So they let him out of committee, but the seminar fee story has done damage and Griffin leads a filibuster that ultimately succeeds. Uh, 22 senators speak against the nomination. They get 45 votes to defeat the filibuster, but they need 59 or something. So they're done. Right. The nomination to chief justice fails. Now, it's worth noting that the public favored the appointment like 45 percent to 25 percent. Mm. So this is really the story of senators feeling an opportunity, identifying it correctly and like pushing all their leverage. Right. Even though the public they didn't really care. Right. They, you had some people who didn't like the court, no doubt. But for the most part, this was all very unusual from the public's perspective. Right. right? The Supreme Court being caught up in all this political fighting. It, it wasn't something that was super compelling to them. And so they never really got like widespread public outcry. But that 25% that opposed him was very vocal. They were sure. fucking calling senators. You know, they were right. writing into their newspaper aghast about pornography and things like that. Right. So Fortas is still on the court, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, he's a sitting justice. <laughs> as is Earl Warren, right? He hadn't officially resigned. And in fact, Earl Warren does not resign until the next year after Nixon wins. Mm -hmm. But Washington is a buzz. This was hot shit. Like, this mm -hmm. is fun, right? This is, has never happened before. And so people were still sort of like feeling this and reporters were still feeling this. A low-level bureaucrat drops a tip to Life Magazine's William Lambert to go look into Fortas's ties to financier Lewis Wolfson. Okay, so what's the deal with this Wolfson guy? Like, who is yeah. he? Wolfson is like this embattled finance guy. He was a pioneer of like private equity stuff. He creates the hostile tender offer, which is a precursor to leveraged buyouts, which is how private equity companies like carve up and dismantle the companies they buy. So cool guy. <laughs> he engages in all sorts of like, you know, shoot from the hip financial kind of techniques, shall we say, cutting edge financial techniques, and not all of them are legal, you know? So he gets into trouble. He also, though, has a civil rights foundation, which is how, like, Fortis gets to know him. They, like, meet at fancy civil rights dinners for rich people, not for regular people who need civil rights, but for rich people who want to talk about civil rights. <laughs> and that's where they meet. That's where Wolfson is like, hey, I've got this SEC investigation going on. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. And Fortis starts to like help him out a bit. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, Wolfson is some finance creep getting investigated by the SEC. And Abe Fortis, while sitting on the Supreme Court, is helping him out. 
And this is all coming up after Fortas has already kind of been embarrassed by losing the chief justice nomination, but it's before Fortas resigns, right? That's right. So like the nomination has been tanked and Fortas is just sort of sitting there on the Supreme Court, but very sad now. And reporters are eager to sort of keep this story going. So this Life magazine guy, William Lambert, he hates LBJ. He hates Fortas. He hates the Warren court, right? He's all over this. He wants to take Fortas down. Right. When Wolfson's SEC issues appear before the court, Fortas actually recuses himself. Right. Which is, of course, the ethical move here. But that convinces Lambert that there's something there that needs to be investigated. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of an ongoing part of this story because Paul Porter, Fortas's old partner, goes to, like, talk Lambert out of reporting on this to convince him that there's nothing there. And what he says is, look, there was a payment, but Fortas returned it, which is true. But that also convinces Lambert that there's something Mm. going on here that Fortas is trying to conceal. Reporting starts and Richard Nixon is smelling blood and he's privately telling people that he wants Fortas off the court. Although publicly, they are posturing very sort of like, this is Congress's responsibility. We're staying out of this, right? Right. Behind the scenes, he's screaming like, (laughs) I want his head. Right. Well, and it's because it's before a time in history where the politics of the Supreme Court are so in front of people, right? Right. Like senators really warring over, like, this is our party's nomination. Everything is so political. The nomination process, the confirmation process is political theater, a complete circus, right? Nixon administration is one of the first to actually take the Supreme Court really, really seriously, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, Nixon being like, I want these fucking nominations. Like, these are my nominations. I want somebody off so that I can nominate somebody to the Supreme Court, right? But it's not at the time of history yet where the Nixon administration would be sort of public about those goals. Yeah, I mean, Nixon is really the first president to think about the court like this. Right. And to sort of apply the same tactics that he used in politics to the court, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, let's bury this motherfucker, right? This is classic Richard Nixon. Very good at leveraging his advantages, very good at playing people behind the scenes, and very good at going after his enemies while maintaining like an optical distance from the public's perspective. So the big reveal comes when it's discovered that the actual payment arrangement was for Fortas to be paid 20 grand a year for life, including to his wife after he dies which is not only a big chunk of Fortas's annual salary of like, I think it's 45 grand a year, but also about a quarter of the grants that the foundation was giving out annually. Mm. So the obvious question is like, why would they agree to this if they didn't feel like they were getting something substantial in return, something more than just like light legal advice, which is frankly, all we really know, I believe, is that Fortas gave him some like initial consultation about the SEC investigation, basically to be like, ah, this is technical stuff. This is not a huge deal. It's pretty clear that more than that happened, although maybe some historian can correct me. I'm not sure that we know. Yeah, yeah. So some other things to point out here, it's pretty much confirmed that Fortas never actually intervened into this guy's investigation, and he never heard any case related to the issue. But the optics here were so bad that it never really mattered, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. no real way to explain this money 
it seems pretty clear that Wolfson was trying to buy influence. The only question is whether he was actually buying influence or whether he was buying nothing. Right. And Fortas was taking the money sort of knowing that that's what was happening, right? Again, it has been pretty consistently written that Fortas was weird about money. Again, he almost turned down the Supreme Court. He probably would have if he wasn't like strong-armed by LBJ, who was a notorious strong-armer. But Fortas is weird about money. It's possible that he was ready to jump at a sizable chunk of money regardless of what was going on. One of his clerks discovered this arrangement and was like, you know, this doesn't look very good. And Fortas reportedly told him to mind his own business. (laughs) (laughs) Is it your money? No. So shut the fuck up. (laughs) If I were that clerk, I would have been like, this is sort of my business because uh, when you go down in disgrace, it does hurt my career a little bit. That is actually on my resume as well. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So Nixon starts ratcheting up the pressure. They send the AG to talk to Earl Warren and show him all the details of the relationship with Wolfson that the administration has uncovered. They make it clear to Warren that they're going to keep putting out information until Fortas resigns. So Nixon is directly applying like shady, weird pressure to the Supreme Court. He's like, we're going to keep leaking info from our investigation until Abe Fortas steps down. Warren is very concerned about the perception of the court publicly. And so he starts encouraging Fortas to step down. J. Edgar Hoover is leaking information about Fortas's use of tax shelters, presumably also at the direction of Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. These are all legal tax shelters, but this is you know, we're talking about like a wave of bad press and this just adds one more thing that people are going to think is shady. Right, right. I mean, the image in total to the public, right, is like this guy, Abe Fortas, he took a ton of money to teach one class at American University, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's taking all this money, a bunch of money from this foundation just every year for life. And you're telling me- He's not giving this guy, you know, legal advice or some sort of influence on the court. Right. And then on top of that, right, now I'm getting information that, yeah, he uses tax shelters and he saves his money in weird ways that, like, only very rich people do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like the evidence is mounting that he's not to be trusted. Right, right. So it's sort of like this internal pressure from Warren and other members of the court that finally gets Fortas to agree to resign. And he does. And if he hadn't, pretty good chance that a successful impeachment proceeding would have happened right after. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would have been too much for Fortas to bear. So he thought resigning in disgrace was (laughs) was better. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the story. There is an epilogue here where Nixon, now having learned that you can do this, is like, okay, let's go for Douglas next. Dispatches a young... Slightly young, not really young, Gerald Ford Mm. to head the effort. Ford puts out a statement like, we need Douglas to step down or be impeached. This effort fizzles out. uh, And I think probably worth eventually doing an episode on the attempted hit on Justice Douglas. But, you know, that's sort of the end of the Nixon administration's 
overt effort to just start funneling these guys off with impeachment proceedings. Right. Which probably would have destroyed the court forever (laughs) as an institution of any integrity, I would imagine. Right. It would have very quickly brought the court to sort of like where it is now in the public's mind, I think. Right. If a president can basically influence everything enough that they can just initiate impeachment proceedings against every justice they don't like, get every justice they don't like off the court, nominate their own justices, right? Pretty blatantly and obviously would be a whole like sham institution. Right, right. So I think the first thing that I thought about when I read all this was that this is everything that conservatives say Robert Bork was, right? If you ask conservatives about like, the politicization of the Supreme Court. They'll basically be like, well, you started this with the attack on Robert Bork. Right. You let politics in to the nomination process, the confirmation process. But if you look at what happened to Abe Fortas, this is a much clearer example. Yeah. Right. This is people who were just mad about the court, mad about desegregation, building up a case. And I think, frankly, choosing the right target Although I think it's probably worth pointing out that like the court was different enough back then that I'm not sure that any justice in their like personal professional affairs would have withstood this level of scrutiny. Right. right like right. everyone looking at their shit. I'm, not, I'm honestly not sure. But certainly they found a shady enough guy in Abe Fortas. The only irony was that the shadiest shit he did was basically working for LBJ and using inside information mm-hmm. to do so, which they didn't bust him on. They got him on these, you know, like seminar fees that were like a little extravagant, but no proven corruption. Right. Uh, it was all sort of like appearance of corruption sort of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know, just a little slice of American history here that I thought was very revealing about sort of like when we started talking about the court like this, when politicians started treating the court like this. And this feels like, you know, you look at the sort of circus of those confirmation hearings and it's antiquated in some degree, right? The old pornography and stuff. But it feels very modern in a way, right? The sort of natural circus of Supreme Court confirmation hearings now. Right. And that it's like it all boils down to like some culture war bullshit, right? Like you're playing porn in the committee to be like, this guy is a porn lover, you know? It's so sort of visceral on purpose, right? Yeah, no, I I think that's right. In that sense, it's sort of like one of these moments where you can see the new Republican Party Mm -hmm. crystallizing, Mm -hmm. right? Both parties go from these sort of like disparate set of interest groups where you have like Southern Democrats, you have Northern Republicans, business interests and segregationists or in this sort of like loose alliance. And then all of a sudden that alliance starts to really gel and you get the merging of these like Southern types with social conservatives and business interests, like law and order middle class people. This is the modern Republican Party coming together. Right. Right. And I think this is one of the first times when you like really see that political alliance on the center stage. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was pretty novel, but now it's just that is the Republican Party. That's just how right? things are. Yeah, exactly. So maybe the natural 
conversation to have here is how this sheds light on like modern ethics conversations. We just had like a new code of conduct implemented by the court. Joke. And it's so fucking stupid that I it's um, it's like I don't entirely want to talk in detail yeah, about it. Right. It's like barely a blip. It's so dumb. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the thing to know for our listeners is that there's no enforcement mechanism. So it doesn't matter really if a justice violates it. It's also basically designed to like allow them to be active members of the Federalist Society, right? There's yeah. like exceptions for participating in nonpartisan, nonprofit, whatever groups, you know, right. pretty much would allow everything that Clarence Thomas and like Sam Alito got into hot water for. And I was just thinking like, I wonder if Abe Fortas and all the shit that he did would have actually even violated this code of conduct. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like entirely sure that he would have. I haven't like gone through the code with a fine tooth comb. But he recused when he needed to recuse. Fortis did, yeah. Yeah, there's a thing about recusal. You're good there. The code says to avoid the appearance of impropriety, which he certainly didn't do that. You know, I think the relationship with Wolfson is a good example of where he might have violated the code. But when the case came up, he recused. He didn't interfere in the investigation. If we're sort of using these, like, you know, really broad principles, he right. could make a case that he didn't do anything wrong here, right? The money that he accepted from the seminar seems to me like it's basically in line with what Supreme Court justices do now, right? You're allowed to sell your book. You're allowed, apparently, to just have a billionaire fund your shit. Right. So it seems to me like getting paid a lot for a seminar as long as you disclosed it, which he didn't do, but there weren't disclosure requirements at the time. As long as you disclosed it, you'd be fine, right? The Wolfson stuff is definitely shadier, but like it seems to me that what's actually happening now is that justices have like a framework for avoiding the appearance of impropriety, but they're still getting paid at the end of the day, right? Exactly. Fortis had like an agreement, like you pay me 20 grand and presumably I will give you legal services in exchange. That would be widely considered unacceptable now. But, you know, Clarence Thomas is just getting his shit funded by Harlan Crow, right? right. There's not a ton of functional difference. Right. It's just sort of this aesthetic difference. Yeah, and the funding for Clarence Thomas, the funding is to hang out with, to be in the room with, to go on vacation with, to participate and speak at events where all of these people who are seeking his influence, right, or want to exert influence on him in his decision-making on the court, mm -hmm. where all of that is happening, right? So it's not sort of a contractual quid pro quo the way maybe the Wolfson-Fortis stuff appeared to be, mm -hmm. right? And like, yeah, here is a certain amount of money. You get it annually. We have agreed to it. And in return, everybody can assume there's something that you're giving me back for that, right? right. Even though the specifics of that return from Fortis haven't ever really been clearly reported on or proven as far as I know. But yeah, like that is what's happening with Clarence Thomas. That is what's happening with Sam Alito is that there's funding, mm -hmm. yeah, astronomical amounts, but it's not like this set contract that says we're going to pay for your vacation, right? If anything, what Fortis, you know, you have to adjust for inflation and shit, but if anything, what Fortis was getting was nothing compared to right. what Thomas has received in like vacations and shit like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, very similar. And the new code of conduct or whatever that they've adopted is not any type of actually productive or effective accountability mechanism. It literally is just so that they can say, we have a code of conduct now. Right. Y'all were mad because we didn't have a code of conduct. Well, we do now. And everything we do is just fine according to the code of conduct. So (laughs) leave us alone. Yeah, you know, I think I posted this somewhere, but like the purpose of that code of conduct is to generate a headline that says there's a code of conduct. Right. So, yeah, like exactly. a little bit of heat is reduced, you yep. know. It starts off by saying that there's a misunderstanding that the justices of the court regard themselves as unrestricted by ethics rules. First of all, that's just condescending. Like, oh, you must be yeah. confused right. about what's going on here. Second of all, Sam Alito literally said that he didn't believe that ethics rules were necessarily constitutional. Right. So it's not a misunderstanding. Yeah, no. It's literally what the justices say. They're telling us that ethics rules don't apply right. to them. <laughs> like, right. yeah. Just incredibly condescending bullshit. And yeah, I think it's interesting how much of the modern scandal just feels like an evolution of these old scandals more than anything, right? Like these big moneyed interests have figured out a way to give justices a slice with some plausible deniability. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Without there being a contract that's like, I'll give you this much money every year, they can still provide the justices with money and luxury and all the things that they would use that cash for. Right. You know, it's functionally the same thing. You know, there's basically one thing that Abe Fortas did that I have not seen the modern justices do. And that's like basically do work for the president, right? Yeah. yeah, I have never seen any indication that anyone did as much work for a president while on the court. But I have seen indications that these sorts of relationships were much more common in the past. Yes. So it's hard to know exactly how far over the line he was. I think he was over the line. I'm not... Definitely. You know, I don't want to be one of these people who's like, oh, Abe Fortas was innocent. Or, like, right, I right. think that's stupid. I, no, this stuff looks gross. There's something Almost there. everything he did was wildly inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a real like smoke and fire situation going on. A lot of this stuff, as far as I know, again, historians can tell me I'm, I'm dumb, but is sort of unverified. But there's so much smoke here that there's got to yeah. be fire. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense otherwise. So I do, before we wrap, want to be like, it probably was... In a vacuum, reasonable that Abe Fortas be forced out of office. Was it a good thing that he was, given that this was an effort by Richard Nixon and a bunch of segregationists? No, absolutely not. But the decision in and of itself to resign makes sense to me. Yeah, and it's very clear, like, yes, maybe Abe Fortas was sort of beyond or crossed a line for how normally sitting justices, their relationships with, you know, the current administration, their outside legal work while they're on the court. Maybe there was something where Fortas, you know, definitely kind of crossed a line. But I think it is true also what you're saying, Peter, which is that, like, at the time, it was much more common. A sitting justice would teach a seminar class at a law school, right? A sitting justice might have outside legal work that they did that didn't have anything Mm -hmm. to do with the cases before the Supreme Court. And it absolutely is a fact, as you talked about, that sitting Supreme Court justices had at least prior 
professional relationships with other people in the presidential administration, in government, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes very close prior working relationships. We have the phrase, the good old boys for a reason, right? Like this is a small group of powerful people, highly educated, powerful people working in government and sort of a revolving door system where, you know, you work in one part of the administration and now you're on the Supreme Court and then you're going to be an ambassador. And then after that, you'll be on the cabinet, whatever it might be. And so with this story with Fortis eventually being forced to resign, you see, like you said, a modern Republican Party forming around the politicization of something that likely was pretty much normal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just this like politicization, this targeting, making it visceral, blaming one person for the cases that segregationists and other conservatives were upset with from the Warren court, right? And you see the use of, in this case, one justice on the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court as an institution, you see the use of it as a political tool that conservatives in this case are coalescing around. And so, you know, bringing it to modern times, you kind of see it's not really that there's so much more accountability. In fact, there's probably less or that justices have really changed in their dealings in terms of who they have relationships with and who they're getting paid by and all of that stuff. That ecosystem is still very, very, very much intact. Today, it's that there's more money involved in that ecosystem, not less, Mm -hmm. right? It's formalized. Exactly. It's the formalized version of what there was. It used to be that Abe Fortas would go chat with LBJ, right? right? Now, if you're Clarence Thomas, you can't go chat with Donald Trump every week, right? Right. That would sort of come across bad. But But your wife can text his lawyer. Right, exactly. Yeah. You don't need to, right? The Federalist Society, in a lot of ways, will do this stuff for them, right? Right. Right. You have someone like Leonard Leo who's going to— hook you up with people exactly. who then talk to the administration, right? Right. This ecosystem developed maybe in the wake of Fortis and similar incidents where they knew that they could no longer get away with these sort of like express ties to politicians. So they created a framework that allowed them to maintain those connections indirectly, allowed them to maintain access to money indirectly, access to power Indirectly. Exactly. All of these things still exist. They're just a little harder to parse. You just have to squint a little bit more. It's not just like a check for 20 grand being handed over to a Supreme Court justice by some corrupt financier, right? Now it's loans that get forgiven to Clarence Thomas, right? right? Houses that are purchased and the purchase not disclosed, vacations that are gifted, all these sorts of things that just allow the thinnest veneer of plausible deniability so that Clarence Thomas can, when you accuse him of corruption, clutch the pearls and be like, oh, you know, how dare you? I am simply a man who loves RVs. One last point, too, in terms of difference then and now. With Fortis, you see a conservative law and order presidential administration as well as conservative segregationist senators sort of leading this fight, doing the leaking and exposing the impropriety. And now today, you don't have Democrats doing that about conservative justices and their corruption. You have good governance reporting organizations, ProPublica, Mm -hmm. 
actually, this is probably a point that Michael would have made, right? That the <laughs> Democrats are mealy-mouthed, lily-levered, really weak party uh, that's not stepping up to the plate in terms of what should be politicized right now yeah. and, you know, accountability and corruption at the Supreme Court. We have really fantastic journalists to thank for that. Mm-hmm. I do think it's worth telling a little story that made me think of like the inability of liberals to process modern politics. Yeah. When Fortas resigned, one of the reasons that he resigned was apparently that he thought that if he did, it would help take heat off of people like Douglas, who the Nixon administration were starting to target. Yeah. And taking a step back, like knowing now a little bit about Abe Fortas, but knowing a lot about William Douglas, you know, if the Nixon administration had had their choice, I imagine that Nixon actually would have wanted to target William Douglas first. Justice Douglas was known at the time as a progressive, cited now as one of the most progressive justices to ever sit on the court, had been on the court by that time already a long time. He was appointed by FDR, ended up being, to this day, the longest sitting Supreme Court justice. And yeah, this is a guy, remember our episode about Sierra Club. This is William Douglas who wrote an opinion that the trees should have standing. Big environmental guy, all of that. So, you know, this is somebody that Nixon hates. Right. Of course, when he did resign, didn't take the heat away. It showed Nixon that you could force a Supreme Court justice to resign. Exactly. A complete misunderstanding of politics. Right. Because what he believed was that he was engaged in some sort of rational discussion with rational actors who were having a conversation of sorts with him about what is and isn't proper. And that if he showed them goodwill, they Mm -hmm. would show him goodwill in return. What was actually happening was that he was getting his shit kicked in by people that didn't care whether he lived or died. (laughs) Right, right. And they were ready to kick the shit in of the next justice down the line, too. Right. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak to the merits of punching a bully in the mouth, but it would have been better to try to punch Richard Nixon in the mouth. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, Glacier Northwest v. Teamsters. We're back in 2023 with some new shit from just last term Mm -hmm. about the ability of employers to sue unions when they strike. So it's not good, (laughs) but try telling Kagan that. Am I right, folks? (laughs) Thank you for subscribing. You can follow us, of course, on social media of all types at 54pod, all spelled out. You can also go to our website and get some merch if you want it. But I personally would wait a couple weeks And maybe we'll have some new merch once we get Michael to put it up at the store, (laughs) which I am volunteering him for right now. That'll be his job. He's going to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Keep an eye out. Bye. Love you. Five to four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. And our researcher is Jonathan DeBrew. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Way to go, Peter. This is a good way to convince me to read stuff about the Supreme Court, because then we can turn it into content. You know what I mean? It's not just for my knowledge, which is not 
a good enough reason for me. I can't read anything <laughs> just to learn ideas. That is not good enough. I need material reasons like turning it into a podcast episode. <laughs>